Well, hello, New Stocko. This is Victor Landa, editor of New Stocko, and welcome to another New Stocko podcast. You guys may have noticed that we haven't had a podcast in a while, and there's a reason for that, and that's because we've been working behind the scenes, trying to see how we can refocus New Stocko, how can we repurpose New Stocko and give it another uh, spark of life, uh, given the times that we've been living in. In the middle of all this restructuring and thinking mostly about what we were going to do, this COVID epidemic pops up. Up. The murder of George Floyd happens with all the demonstrations that happened afterwards. And we thought that now was a good time to pop in with a podcast to talk about what's going on in the world around us, in the country, uh, having to do with these two things. Now, if you followed New Stocko, you know that I'm a big fan of data. I'm a big fan of statistics because data tells stories, because data is fact, because even though you can spin the numbers in one way or another, the facts remain, the numbers are the numbers, and if you dive into them, you can find out. So with that in mind, I was looking for a way to tell the best story about what's happening in the U.S. Latino community uh, having to do with this COVID epidemic. And I thought of Dr. Rogelio Sainz. Dr. Sainz is a uh, professor of demography and social science at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Now, I first met Dr. Sainz when he did a report uh, on on the status of poverty in San Antonio, and they followed it up later with a status of women report. Now, these two reports have served as a roadmap for policy changes that have happened in San Antonio to fight poverty and to elevate the status of women in our city. Well, as it happens, Dr. Science has also been studying uh, what's been happening with the data behind COVID, specifically what's been happening with the data having to do with U.S. Latinos uh, across the country. He has been following this COVID epidemic since April. And he's been tracking to see uh, where the higher levels have been happening, the higher levels of infection, specifically among U.S. Latinos. And I don't know of anybody else that's been doing this specifically uh, having to do with the Latino community. So I called him up and we had a conversation and it was uh, varied and, and, and wide ranging. And uh, I found out some startling things that, that he backs up with data because, as I said, he's been following the numbers very closely. First, that there's very little information having to do with Latinos specifically. Now, it, it's been increasing. There's more and more as time goes by, but it's still problematic about how Latinos are counted. So what we hear in the media about Latino population having to do with COVID is very different than what's actually happening. And that's because the numbers somehow bury what's happening with the age and the youthfulness and how the Latino population's youth has been affecting uh, the numbers of, of Latinos. Turns out that when you do a deep dive, Latinos are dying at twice the rate as uh, whites. And in some areas of the country, three, four, five times the rate. It has to do with Latino farm workers, uh, how they, they're living together. You know, how do you self-isolate a person who is sick or who has gotten sick working in, in, in the farms uh, across the country when a person who self-isolates is supposed to use only one bathroom and nobody else is supposed to use it in a household that only has one bathroom for the entire family? And, and also, uh, the idea of meat packers working on a, con on a conveyor belt. The areas where there are meat packing operations are now showing the highest 
highest rates of Latino infections and deaths. We, we, you know, we talked about what needs to be done to address the increases uh, of COVID in the Latino population. And while we were talking about this, there was a report in San Antonio, which is where we're both from, that uh, there had been a peak of 376 cases. And since the time that we recorded this and I, uh, I edited this and now it's being published, there have been spikes of more than 700 new cases uh, and, and that's been startling and and it's it's uh, you know it's an emergency already we're at that level and the latino uh, population in san antonio is being uh, deeply affected you know the, the dr science is, is doing research on covid with colleagues in other countries comparing what's happening in the u.s with what's happening in other countries across the globe and specifically what's happening to latinos in the u.s and comparing them to what's happening in other parts of the country so you know he has insights that I couldn't find anyplace else. So I was so happy to have this conversation and to bring this conversation to you. And we end the conversation uh, with a bit of hope. And that has to do uh, because our conversation meandered and made its way to what's happening uh, after the death, of, after the murder of George Floyd and all the demonstrations. And he sees hope as do I, in young people taking to the streets, taking matters into their own hands and holding their elected officials and their leaders accountable as to policy and the next steps to take. Connected with him over the phone, so uh, the audio that you'll hear from him, and it's not an apology, it's just letting you know in these days of COVID social distancing, I had this conversation over the phone with him, and that's why his audio is going to seem just a, a little bit off, but that's the reason behind that. It's about 32 minutes of a conversation, and I think it's worth your time to listen to it all the way through because what I hope is going to happen uh, when you listen to this conversation is that you take the data that he's given us, the idea that he's given us, and fold them into your conversations when you talk about COVID in the days and weeks to come. Because what's happening to the Latino population having to do with COVID is not front and center in our conversations, and it needs to be. So that said, all of that said, let's listen to this conversation and uh, I'll be back at the other end of it. So welcome to our podcast, Dr. Science. Thank you very much, Victor. What is it that you're working on these days? Well, right now, a lot of the stuff that is going on right now with the, with the COVID cases that, uh, that have been emerging particularly in the, in the Latino community. And this is something that I started monitoring back in early April as we began seeing some states that were providing some of the uh, data on Latino cases as well as uh, Latino deaths. So that I've been really tracking to see where we've seen high levels of um, infection among Latinos. Because for the most part, there had been very, very little information that was coming out on Latinos. And there's still information that is problematic because in some cases you see that it goes back like the way official statistics define Latinos. Uh, oh, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you have that, that old problem. Yeah, that old problem. Yeah. So uh, yeah. In, in many states, you do have Latinos and separated from the white, non-Hispanic whites and, and uh, non-Hispanic blacks and, and so forth. But there are still at least a about two, three weeks ago, there were still, I'd say, maybe about a third of the states that were defining, they would conduct analysis based on race, which included Latinos that were identifying as white, as black, etc. And then statistics for 
Hispanic Latinos and non-Hispanic Latinos. So that it was very difficult to compare what is going on with whites and Latinos because those Latinos that identify as whites are also counted in, in the in the white totals. So how do you get a handle on this if it's like trying to grab a fistful of water because there's there's no definite definition and, and it's also varied depending on what state you're in? Exactly. How do you make sense of it? Exactly. So for the most part, when you're trying to compare Latinos and whites, you you really have to rely on those data that are available that separate the, the two groups. Nonetheless, one of the things is that because the other states provide data on Latinos and then non-Hispanics, then that allows you then at least to compare states uh, across the country to one another based upon only on the on what's going on with the with the Latino population without wow. giving you that uh, that advantage of being able to also compare whites and uh, and Latinos. But it, <laughs> so, but it is, yeah, go ahead. Well, so, so given all of this, well, we do know that one thing for sure, that there are six states in the in the nation where about two-thirds of the Latino population reside, right? Yeah, and, and those yeah. are the ones that, that have been that way forever, uh, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, Florida. Yeah. New York has a huge chunk as well. Yeah. Given all this, is there one takeaway? Is there one simple thing that people need to know? Or, or yeah. is it just too complicated for something like that? No, I think that there are some patterns that are emerging very, uh, very quickly. For one is that when you take a look at the overall death rates, that you're able to look at death rates for whites and compare them to um, to Latinos. Um, there was one work that came out uh, just recently and earlier in the month that was really showing very, very little difference in, in the death rates, which was measured by the number of deaths per 100,000 people in the, in the okay. population. And it was suggesting that with Latinos, it was something like 28 and with whites, it was 26. And uh, that doesn't make sense with uh, what we see taking place in the, in the media account, the extent to which you've seen the hotspots involving Latino deaths and things like that. And that was also emerging in my earlier work, where uh, this is something that I published in, uh, in early May that was showing that there was only one state, and that was the state of New York. And at that time, the state didn't include New York City. And it was the only states where the proportion of COVID deaths was higher among Latinos than its percentage share in the population. That was the only state. And I was going, what the heck is going on here? I mean, that yeah, really. does not make sense. And um, what, what but, about it made no sense? Or is it because of it, the way it's reported? Is it the media that's just not telling the right story? Because, no, because I, you see the... Yeah. Go ahead. I, yeah, I think the, the media provided you that backdrop to look at, at that statistic very critically because you were seeing a lot of what was going on from the ground you were seeing that uh, uh, media accounts of how devastating the uh, coronavirus has been uh, for latinos so then it was the putting the kind of the, the demographers hat on uh -huh. and, and then it has to do really with the uh, usefulness of the latino population compared to the older white population so that oh. if you look at at median age for, for Latinos, the median age in the U.S. is 29, and for whites, it's 44 or so. So you're talking about a 13, 14-year difference in, in the age. And also with um, the white population, one of every five whites is 65 and older. With the case of Latinos, one out of every 14 of us is 65 and older. 
so that whites are much more clustered in the age categories where the probability of, of dying from the coronavirus, as well as from other diseases and so forth, is much, much higher than it is for Latinos. With us, a third of uh, Latinos are less than 18 years of age. So you're talking yeah, about, yeah. yeah, so if you don't control for age, you see those differences that are reported that at first glance it suggests, man, Latinos are really doing not too bad because, look, we're, we're just a little bit higher in the death rate than the white population. And then I was able to take for a few of the states where you find that age is reported for the deaths. Mm-hmm. California has been one of these, the state of New York, New York City, and so forth. And then you start looking at the death rates within each of these age categories. And then you can also calculate the age-adjusted death rate, which takes into account age differences. And then all of a sudden you see that Latinos are really the dying at twice the rate of the white population. When and you make is, all these corrections. Yeah, once you adjust for these uh, age differences, then, then you find that particularly in the younger age categories, in the 20s and the 30s, 40s, and so forth, that Latinos are actually dying in some cases three, four, five times higher than the white population. And that is very much consistent with what we're seeing with Latinos being disproportionately represented among frontline workers in the essential oh. industries and things so where you have yeah. many of these individuals don't have the luxury of working from home. So they're at greater risk. And that's where you really see those major age differences. By the time you're talking about in the older age categories at age 80 and older, Latinos are dying at a higher rate than whites, but it is more like 30% higher or something like that, rather than two or three or four times higher, as you see in the younger age categories for you know, the working and, and age. Yeah. I wonder about a family structure, and, and, and I yeah. bring this up because in the Latino community, we tend to keep our elders within the home. Yeah. And I don't know if because I don't have an answer, it just occurs to me, is, are, are they more susceptible because young people could be bringing the, the COVID into the home? Yeah. Or are they less susceptible because they're not living in clusters with other old people as other populations, we'll just put it that way, tend, yeah. tend to do? Yeah, I think that that has to do where you have the multi-generations living in the same household, but that has obviously, I think, is playing a, a role. So you have a son or a daughter that is out uh, as an essential worker and so forth yeah. coming back. And I'm sure that people are taking precautions when they come back because they know how deadly the disease has been for older individuals. But there is that kind of the, the transmission. And obviously, some people are also saying, that with Latinos, especially if they're going to be multiple generations, that you also have less space, for example, that you may have uh, more limited resources, higher levels of poverty and so forth, so that there is less space to social distance within the home. And there's been some really fascinating research that has been taking place in uh, California. Ed Kissam, who has been public health researcher focusing on uh, on Latino farm workers has really been doing really amazing research right now. And one of the things that he's finding out is particularly farm workers, and you have a lot of the farm workers are also undocumented or have been here for 20, 30 uh, years, many of those working in agriculture and so forth, yeah. is the transmission that you're also seeing in, in the community where you have everything from getting up in the morning 
to go into to the fields, for example, either taking the uh, raiteros, mm-hmm. the carpooling that takes place, or a bus that picks them up. Right away, you have the transportation taking place, and then the extent to which we see, just like in uh, meatpacking and so forth, that people are working very close to each other. And then you have people then coming back home, and then the possibility of, of transmission becomes more likely than for those individuals that are working at home, for example, or that have the luxury of a greater space. And one of the things that Ed Kissam is also talking about is that of regarding, again, where people are working. If you're in cruise, for example, you may be working, uh, living alongside other workers, so you may have a good number of people living in, in the same household. And for those people that get infected, how do you self-isolate the CDC talks about, you know, get yourself yeah. in your own bedroom. Don't have contact with others. Make sure you have your own bathroom, which is not a reality for many people who are much more marginalized from the traditional life that, uh, that the CDC kind of envisions that uh, that most people that points a big arrow towards the farm worker community that you were just talking about, the, the conditions that they live in. And that's the same thing that you see, I think, in, in terms of um, the meatpackers. So we've seen these yeah. big hotspots that have emerged in those communities. And and again, you have these people that are on this whole cycle of the all the way from the animal being killed uh, or stunned and uh, killed. And as you move through that production line, the people that are the really cutting the pieces into smaller and smaller pieces are the ones that are and the the conveyor belt or whatever the case may be that uh, uh-huh. it's it's at a high speed so people are having to work real quickly and so forth and on their breathing uh, heavily yeah yeah so, so uh, uh so you really have that uh, that uh, taking place and the extent to which later research i did uh months after because the first publication i did was in uh, early may then i followed it up in early June, and that was showing clearly that you, the number of cases, the number of states that had data, it was almost all of the states with the exception, well, it, actually in, uh, in June, there was only one state, New Mexico, where Latinos had fewer, lower percentages of uh, Latinos with COVID infection compared to their percentage of the population. And that was in New Mexico. All okay. others, you had much higher. And in some cases, you have four or five times higher than their percentage in the in the overall population. And those tend to be those areas where you've seen the outbreaks in uh, meatpacking operations. And then what the data was also showing that now, I, I had mentioned that back in, in May, there was only New York where Latinos were overrepresented among the deceased. Yeah. And now there are about six or seven states. And again, some of these states that have the meatpacking operations, Iowa, North Carolina, Wisconsin, a variety of these areas where we've seen kind of the outbreaks uh, taking place. So if you were to, for a, a moment, take off your demographer's cap yeah. and look at what needs to happen policy-wise from the Latino, U.S. Latino population lens, from that point of view, 
would it differ from what's going on right now? Uh, yeah, I think it has to, uh, because one, we're talking about uh, protection of, of workers, and you're talking about the essential workers that Latinos, African Americans, and and immigrants as a, as a whole have been in the front lines of the of the virus. The extent to which you have limited testing that has taken place, the extent to which you have people that are also living on the, on the margins, also they need to work. Uh, you yeah. know, with with a immigrant community has been left out of the stimulus bill and so forth. And even their U.S. born uh, spouses and family are left out of those. So you talk about a family that needs the resources to be able to continue to exist, to keep their home, to keep food on the table and so forth. And the extent to which there is so much pressure for people that even if they feel sick, that they consider what other option do I have to to be able to feed my family? And it just puts immigrant communities, Latino, African-American communities at much, much higher risk compared to, to the white population. And we know that for many people in our community that are on the front lines, particularly, are also people who have pre-existing chronic conditions that puts them at, at a higher rate of risks. And then in, in the larger community, Latino community, African-American, as well as the larger uh, U.S. community, is the extent to which the pandemic is still, still alive and well, and we're opening the economy and we're and all the activity that is taking place. And we've seen here in, in San Antonio, was it 386 uh, new cases in one day, yes. the highest that we've seen for one day, and that's taking place in Texas, it's taking place in, in other states, and you see that risk that is uh, that people are being put in, and Paul Krugman, yeah. the, uh, the economist, the economist uh, wrote a piece uh, last month or so that he was talking about that uh, Trump is put, putting workers in the situation uh, because he cares very much about the stock market and so forth, dying for the Dow, he talks about, then uh, uh, sending people out, putting them at risk and so forth. And, and we're seeing that that, uh, that taking place here. And uh, again, with the testing and the availability of testing is better than it was two months ago, but it's still quite uh, difficult in, in some cases, particularly for people who are here as undocumented or they don't have insurance. And we know that in the Latino community, about 25% of us don't have healthcare insurance. Going back to the work of Ed Kissam, he talks about the rural uh, agricultural communities in California and the San Joaquin Valley, and you have to drive about an hour away to be able to find testing. So those are still these big disparities and differences in how vulnerable people are to catching the disease. It's so difficult, though, to see the, the longer range because w there's a discussion that I've been watching of people that are saying that this is a second wave when others are saying, no, in fact, it's a, it's a spike within the first wave. We're not even out of the first one yet. So so to start to look at what we're going to do long range, it's almost as if people haven't even caught their breath on this one. Exactly. And you look yeah. around at the resources. Are there going to be resources for an eventual second wave? What is that yep. going to look like? Yeah, yeah. I agree totally with you that it may very well be that uh, this isn't really the, the second spike, but it's a normal kind of events that were taking place with, uh, with the virus and the way it's been popping up here, popping up there, and, uh, and, and uh, ravishing the population. Uh, but when I was talking about kind of the, the longer term, I was talking about kind of the existing disparities that we see today 
where we see people in, in our community that are much more likely to have um, the disadvantages of higher rates of uh, diabetes, higher, higher uh, uh. rates. Uh, yeah, so those kind of longer terms and dealing with issues having to do with the lack of health care insurance, the lack of ha- access to health and so forth, kind of what the pandemic from the early days very quickly showed all the disparities, all the problems that existed, that it just laid them there for everyone to see. Uh, that when we come out of the pandemic, that's going to have to be a, a major kind of issue as we see it then with uh, uh, unrest that is going on with uh, with the demonstrations and so forth, with the killing of uh, George Floyd. We see that there's yeah. so many things, that there's so many problems that have existed for generations, 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 and centuries and centuries. And we've, as a as a country, the power structure and whites and, and even people in our own community have been kind of uh, shutting their eyes or closing their ears, trying to say, no, th- these things don't exist. It's it's uh, individuals' faults and things like that, rather than there are these deep structural racist, systemic racist kind of uh, um, policies yeah. and patterns that reproduce this inequality and that's what we're seeing very much clearly with uh, with these disparities that we see in terms of risks and communities of color dying at much much higher rates and we see it also with the native american community as well and there if we think that there are problems with the data for for latinos the problems are even much much greater for Native Americans, particularly on the reservations and so forth. And New Mexico, where it's the only state where Latinos are underrepresented among the, the people with, uh, with infected by COVID, Native Americans represent about 10% of the population there in the state, but they represent about 60% of, uh, of all the, the COVID infections and so forth. And there's where you also see deep, deep levels of, uh, of poverty that, uh, that have been going on for, for generations and generations. There is so much that we can touch upon because you brought up the demonstrations. And I could write a list yeah. of everything that at this point is urgent for the Latino population. Yeah. We're talking about the, the COVID-19 pandemic. We're talking about the police issue, Black Lives Matter. We're talking about the election and voter registration and voter participation. We're talking about census and everything having to do with that. Of all of these things, all of these things put together, uh, Dr. Sainz, is, is there like what keeps you up at night? What, what do you worry about? I, this morning, I've, I've, I've been reading uh, the, the paper, the spikes that have been going on, and it's uh, very, very kind of dis- depressing. I mean, uh, this uh, this morning, I I felt sadder than uh, than than I have uh, really. I was I was sensing kind of uh, something that was going on in me, and and I see that that is. Uh, that these kind of spikes that that you see and uh, and you just happen to open that that floodgate there because I I had been thinking as I was reading and uh, feeling down and and so forth. Um, on the other hand, I, I've been extremely busy uh, with putting these data together. I've been involved in a, a project, two projects also with colleagues in uh, in Mexico. Uh, uh, one project early on this uh, this was in April that was uh, where in Colegio de Mexico they brought together uh-huh. people from the U.S. and uh, and Mexican uh, scholars to address what is going on in both of the countries and so forth. And I had re- written a piece on uh, Latino immigrants here 
And yesterday was the first segment that uh, there were about eight presenters. And then I'm in the group that, uh, that will be on, uh, on the 30th uh, uh-huh. of, uh, of the month that will deal with issues of vulnerable communities. That's where Latino immigrants come. And then I've been also involved with uh, colleagues at, uh, at UNAM in uh, Mexico, in La Ciudad de Mexico, as well as uh, uh-huh. La Ibero and uh, Puebla that brings scholars from Europe, the United States, and Latin America looking at kind of what are the trends that are taking place. And I'm right now in the middle of finishing that work there. And it's really, really depressing. As you see, the bigger picture here in the United States, um, one of the paradoxes that is really, that stands out is the disparities between the amount of money that the U.S. spends in healthcare, we spend more than any country in the world in healthcare. But at the same time, we come in like a, depending on which study we look at, but something either a large number of uh, countries that we rank about middle thirties or something like that, or wow. among uh, comparable countries, a dozen or so, that we come in eleventh or twelfth place, whatever the case may be, and there is. The healthcare system is totally broken, and we saw what the pandemic did here. And then, just like the work with the Latino community that I've talked about, what percentage of cases are Latino and so forth, in in the case of, uh, of the U.S., and I think this really puts it in perspective, is that the U.S., we account for 4% of the overall population in the world, but, yeah. we, but we account for 27% of the COVID infections and the COVID deaths, 4 to 27%. For, so. and, and within the United States, the Latinos and, and African-American and indigenous populations, native populations, are disproportionate. Exactly. Yeah. 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 These are sobering numbers. And I think, so, it, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that this COVID did uh, that I've been noticing is that it pulled the cover off of all the problems that we have, Uh uh, where they were nicely tucked away and a lot of people were fine not thinking about them. Now the cover is pulled and we have to think about them because it's for the good of everybody to think about them in a very direct, very specific, very uh, present way. Um, And as we start to address those problems now that they've been uncovered now that there's energy behind doing something about them from from a a statistical from a data point of view what are the things that we should be looking at that can guide us in these next steps i think in terms of a a a critical look at how we are uh, distributing resources what our priorities are so you see things like uh where we're putting our resources right now, for, okay. and I'll give you two examples. And I have a colleagues here at uh, UTSA that sent me a, an op-ed that they were working on, which was really fascinating. I said, this is really eye-opening and it's going to get a lot of attention uh, when when it's published. But they're lo- they were taking a look at the budget of, uh, of, the, of our community here in, in San Antonio. And I think it was- The city like, budget. The city budget. And I think it was something like 490 million dollars that was yes. going into policing the largest yeah, six, segment 66% of, the, of it goes yeah, well it goes to public safety meaning yeah. fire and police yeah 
So you're talking about all this money here. And then mm-hmm. their exercising that we're doing is uh, what could we do with a portion of that particular, uh, what would it buy? And you're talking about That's the, fascinating. Uh, what, what you could buy, housing for people who are homeless, a college education for many of our kids in our, in our communities and so forth. When you're talking about that kind of resources that are put, communities are sending a message about what their priorities are, what their values are, and a lot of the things that we care about that have put us in this kind of situation are those kind of programs that receive very, very limited kind of resources. And that's one that we can really make a difference, I think. And then the other one has to do with, again, having to do with resources. Again, the extent to which there has been major disparities that is going on with the stimulus bill as people are getting checks or not getting checks. And I I mentioned uh, immigrants, undocumented, their families and so forth are cut off from the system, even though many have been here for a long, long, long time. They're Mm -hmm. paying taxes and, and and so forth. They're paying into the system. They're at risk. They're feeding us. But yet they've been left out of the, of the stimulus and, and the protection uh, that is coming about. And we see this also in terms of uh, some people that still haven't gotten their checks, uh, the unemployment, people who have been unemployed. And it has been those people that are the most marginalized that, are, that have been left out. And we also see it with small businesses as well. The big bucks went immediately to the larger businesses, corporations, and yeah. so forth. And so that if we aren't, and this is the time where it's, it, it, it's been exposed in terms of the inequalities, if we don't pay attention to this now, we never will. And November is coming along, and this is going to be the most important election because we see Republicans, for example, they fought every step of the way in terms of uh, of putting money in the hands of regular working people. And there have been like a, a Lindsey Graham that was talking about complaining so much that we're now going to give workers $600 extra per month and yeah. that uh, a large number of workers are now going to be receiving more money not to work than, and that that's going to lose the incentive system. Can you believe that? I think, I, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah and, uh, and, but at the same time, they don't raise any stink in terms of the amount of money that is going to large corporations and their rich buddies and, and so forth. So that hopefully this will also be a wake-up call for people in, in our community that have not voted in the past, that have not registered to vote, that the political system is also plenty broken and it disadvantages the poor Latinos, African Americans, uh, Native Americans, people of color Absolutely. Uh, uh, completely. Um, yeah. You know, because so much of what happens to spur a political kind of a movement within a community has, it happens at the kitchen table. Yeah. And we are a community who we don't talk politics yeah. mm-hmm. in, in the family. It's just not something that we do. Yeah. And I think until we can make room for that yeah. in our kitchen table conversations, things are going to remain the same. I am a little bit hopeful that uh-huh. that young community that you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, yeah. they are starting to get a little bit older. Exactly. And when, yeah. when that young population starts to get a job, 
starts uh-huh. to have a rent or mortgage and a family, uh-huh. those things are, are the things that spur people to be a little bit more involved and participate in their politics. Yeah. Latinos, I think, get a rap for not voting, and it's true, Latinos, the percentage is low, uh-huh. but my belief is that Latinos don't vote not because they don't care, they don't vote because they're young. Yeah. And mm-hmm. young people across the board don't vote. Yeah. So yeah. as the Latino population ages a little bit more, and I've always thought that 2024 was going to be the year uh-huh. that Latinos are going to come out in mass just because of age. But I don't know, given yeah. this COVID thing, yeah. it might be this year. Yeah. yeah. And you see this, I think that the, the, the seeds of hope have been there. Um, one has been the, uh, even though they're not eligible to vote, but we saw the potential political energy that exists in our community. And that was with the, uh, the, the dreamers. Yes. Uh, and how they took to the streets and so forth back in the uh, 2006 and have kept it up and so, and so forth. And you've seen that that fight uh, and and the desire. And now what's happening here with the demonstrations again. That and it's predominantly the young that are out there. Uh, and this is really. It, to me, it has been very much energizing the younger population who are people who will hold, I think, uh, politicians accountable, people who are going to put pressure, people, and we see here in our own community that day after day after day, there has been the demonstrations that you see that uh, that particular willpower there. And I think that this is really uh, a significant change that, uh, that is, that is going on. And again, it's the youth, the, the dreamers uh, back more than a decade ago and, uh, and the youth that are, that are on the street in the streets right now. Yeah. I saw a report uh, day before yesterday, I believe it was, where Voto Latino was saying that since the marches had begun, they had had a spike of two thousand seven hundred percent in their voter re- voter registration. Wow! Well, yeah. Wow! Well, that's that's great. And that's it, what, it is. That, that's one thing that uh, that I've been talking about with uh, with the youthfulness of the of the Latino population here in Texas. Every year. There are about 200, uh, a little bit more than 200. I think it's 202,000 Latinos that turn 18 every year. Yes. yes. So can you imagine uh, that that particular potential for for voting and uh, and so forth? Yet at the same time, um, I think it's the uh, Texas Organizing Project that had mm-hmm. done a, a study that they had found that only a very small percentage of schools actually provide twice a year the opportunity for people to to register to vote at, in the high schools when they turn in into, the high schools yeah so yes. the, so you still have that roadblock that is part of that larger political structure that has kept us where we are in many respects in terms of and has created all the roadblocks voter id uh no no mail-in votes and so forth go out there mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. the front lines to vote to try to keep power uh and to try to rein the demographic kind of a potential um, that that has the potential to translate into uh, ultimate political power. These are going to be really interesting months coming up from here to November. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. With all okay. of these things that we're talking about, because the, the COVID pandemic is going to fold into, it's going to dovetail and have, a, a, I think, a huge effect yeah. on politics, yeah. on, on the election. Correct. And and I don't know if, if it's going to either drag it out or it's going to be contentious. I'm sure it's going to be contentious, but yeah. contentious uh-huh. in a different way, you know, end up in courts. I don't know. I mean, yeah. uh, th- there's going to be a lot to talk about between now and then. Oh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we say that we're going to leave this as an open conversation. We'll come back to it because I'm sure that by next month, things are going to be different. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. Okay. We'll do that then. And and we'll thank you very much for your time. I know oh, you've got I, a lot going on, so I appreciate I, it. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.